0: Doctors are being silenced, and we already saw this with COVID and vaccines. We saw this with doctors before Roe was overturned. If you are silent and let the politicians make decisions for you and what you are allowed to say, it is never going to stop because you will have to stay in a state where you agree with all of the politics, and that's not where the healthcare is the most needed.
1: This is the Visible Voices Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Risa Lewis. Before we get started, here's a word about the Gritty Nurse
2: Podcast. Hi, my name is Amy, and I am the co-host and co-founder of the Gritty Nurse Podcast, an unfiltered discussion related to health and healthcare. On our podcast, we shy away from nothing, discussing hot topics in healthcare such as mental health, social justice, health equity, women's rights, and women's health, and nursing as a profession.
1: Hi, listeners. Thanks for joining, and I'm delighted to bring you my conversation with Kimmy Chernobyl and Robin Marty. Sensitivity warning. Today's conversation is about abortion care, women's reproductive health, and health care. Kimmy Chernoby is an MDJD. She's currently counsel for reproductive rights and health at the National Women's Law Center and an instructor of emergency medicine at the GW School of Medicine and Health Sciences. That's George Washington in Washington, D.C., She was the first graduate of the University of Florida's MDJD program, and she previously served as a health policy fellow for the Senate Committee on Health, Education, Labor, and Pensions. Robin Marty and I met uh, basically on a podcast. She didn't know we met, but I listened to her on the Molly Jung Fast Fast Politics podcast, and I knew I wanted to speak with her. She is in Tuscaloosa, Alabama, where she's the director of operations for the West Alabama Women's Center. She's a freelance reporter and a frequent contributor to, for example, Time Magazine, Cosmopolitan, NBC, The Guardian, and MSNBC. She's the author of the book Handbook for a post roe America, which is a guide for what to do if and when Roe is overturned, and the co-author of The End of Roe v. Wade. So audience, just to give you a little bit of frame of the importance of this conversation and the importance of the Dobbs decision, this affects patients and safety of patients, and healthcare workers' ability to provide safe care for patients. It's not just OBGYN as a specialty that's been affected. Emergency medicine has been affected because pregnant patients come for their care very, very often to the emergency department. When we get to the conversation, Kimmy is speaking, and she's talking to us about the implications of the Dobbs decision. She then tells us about the situation in Washington, D.C. Robin picks up and talks to us about Alabama. Let's get to it.
2: And normally the Supreme Court adheres to prior decisions or precedent. But in Dobbs, what they said was, look, we have reevaluated our decision and we think we got it wrong in Roe v. Wade. We think we got it wrong in Casey and that, in fact, the Constitution does not recognize the right to abortion. And so because the way the Constitution is structured and we have this system of you know limited federalism that, if it's not decided at the federal level, it goes back to the states. And that's what they said in DOMS says, look, because there's no federal protection, it goes back to the states and states can decide what they want as it relates to abortion. And so that's why you've seen this proliferation of state laws related to abortion. And in some states, they've said, look, like we're going to take this into our own hands and we're going to proactively protect the right to reproductive health care, including contraception and including abortion. But what you've seen more commonly is that states have taken the opportunity to ban abortion. So Washington, D.C. does not have a ban on abortions. I actually practice mostly in Virginia. And again, although we have a Republican governor, we don't have a ban on abortions um, pre-viability right now because we have a Democratic-led Senate. And so, you know, things right now in Virginia and D.C. are looking okay.
0: So Alabama is. Different. Um, That's a very simple way of putting it. But Alabama has a total abortion ban, like many other states. I believe there are 12 states right now that either have a complete abortion ban or an abortion ban at... about um, two weeks after a missed period, which is essentially an abortion ban, totally altogether, um, Alabama is unique in the fact that Alabama is the only state in the United States that has what is known as a personhood amendment on their state constitution. In 2018, Alabama voted to pass a amendment to the constitution that said that life begins at the moment of conception, life should be protected from the moment of conception, and it is the government's obligation. To to ensure that life is protected from the moment of conception. What that means for us is that, first of all, we have no ability to challenge any of these abortion bans because this is written straight into our state constitution. What it also means is that because at the point in which an egg is fertilized, that is considered a unique person and that any action that would counter the development of that is considered murder, that we are looking at not just there is a ban on abortion, but also um, is it okay for people to do IVF? Is it okay? What happens if somebody has a miscarriage? Do we start investigating that? Um, Is a doctor going to get in trouble if there is somebody who has a threatened pregnancy and they go ahead? and? finish the termination of that pregnancy, who decides whether that pregnancy would have been viable otherwise? Um, If somebody ingests something that might harm a fetus or an embryo, is that chemical endangerment, which is something that we often see women being accused of. And we just had another case of somebody being um, prosecuted over this idea of chemical endangerment. So we go beyond just abortion is illegal to any action that does not make a pregnancy continue you in a healthy way could be considered murder.
1: You've talked about self-managed abortion, trigger ban, and circling back to what's keeping you up at night, financial terrorism for patients, but also for you and your clinic.
0: A trigger ban is a piece of legislation that has been sitting dormant on a in a state until the point in which Roe was overturned. For Alabama, that meant that we had not just this personhood amendment that I spoke of, but also a 2019 law that said that abortion is murder and any doctor or any person who helps provide an abortion would end up in jail for 99 years. Um, that is the law that we are working under right now. However, that was not a trigger ban. That was something that could be allowed to go into effect once the injunction was taken off of it because Roe was overturned. We also had a law from the 1950s that stated that any person who had an abortion, whether they helped someone with an abortion or actually received the abortion, would then be put in jail. Um, they could spend up to a year in prison and also face a fine of at least $1,000. Um, this was the the trigger law that went into effect the moment that Roe was overturned and was the reason why we had to immediately stop all services the second that we heard that decision, because it was no longer just about what would happen to our doctors. It was about would each patient be in some sort of legal jeopardy? Would the state come in and say, okay, we know this decision came down at five a.m., so any patient that did something after 9.05 they are officially doing something illegal and we could throw them in jail. So self-managed abortion is actually something that a lot of people think of as a form of illegal abortion, but that's not true. A self-managed abortion just simply means the act of taking medication, usually, um, taking it at home. And so you are your abortion provider rather than the doctor physically giving the pills to you. Um, It's something that people do via telemedication. It's something that people do by having pills mailed to them from legal clinics. And down here in the South, it's something people do by accessing them from different websites. Um, PlanCPills.org has all sorts of different places that people can go to in order to get this. Um, And so when they are at home, they are able to take the medication by following the instructions that comes to them. What we do know is that if people are getting pills from a place that they can trust. It is an extraordinarily safe procedure. We also know that it's very important that if a person has the ability, they should go someplace in order to get an ultrasound to see exactly how far along they are to make sure that they are eligible and can safely take these and aren't too far along in their gestation. And also people need a place to be able to go to afterwards, if they either have questions, um, if they think they bled too much, if they think they didn't bleed enough, a place where they can go into to get an ultrasound and make sure everything's okay. And that's one of the reasons why our clinic is staying open right now. We are trying to stay open to make sure that these people have a safe place to go where they can be seen, where they're not turned away, and also where they don't have to worry about being investigated. And that's where financial terrorism comes in, because we are being punished for that. We are being punished for the fact that we are providing emergency services that our hospitals are uncomfortable with. We're being punished for the fact that we still say that abortion is a part of health care, because it is. Every pregnancy has the potential to kill the person who is carrying it. It does not matter how rich you are, how much insurance you have, how much medical help you have. Every pregnancy can kill a person. And so we are right now in Alabama seeing the only way that the The state legislature has addressed this change in abortion legality is they've introduced a bill saying that you can write off tax credits for providing money to crisis pregnancy centers. And they specifically wrote into the legislation that if you even ally with an abortion organization, you are not eligible for this tax credit.
1: Robin, you just dropped a lot of important knowledge bombs and fact bombs regarding what's happening for you in Alabama at the clinic. So I want to go back to talking about the zero to 12 weeks. And, you know, that's really been emphasized in what you've written about, what you've spoken about. And what I particularly liked is you explained why this is a bigger deal in the United States than, for example, in Europe in Alabama, in order to qualify for
0: Medicaid once you are pregnant, you have to see a doctor who will verify that pregnancy, and only then can you begin the actual application process, which will still take at least four to six weeks. Um, once you have made it through that application process, you are approved for Medicaid, and only then can you start to look for a doctor who will start to take your prenatal care and be able to see you through to a delivery. There Every doctor is required to accept Medicaid. Every doctor is not required to accept Medicaid patients. And as any provider out there listening knows, um, Medicaid reimbursement is really, really bad. Um, I so one of the things that we are doing right now is the fact that we do accept Medicaid, but also we provide free prenatal care. And so if a person discovers that they are pregnant and they do not have insurance, they come to us, we do the pregnancy verification, we start them on the process to be able to get Medicaid, but then we also provide all of their prenatal care until the point where either they are approved for Medicaid and find their own doctor who will take. Over the rest of the care, or if they are unable to do that, or they choose not to, they stay with us and they are provided free prenatal care or if Medicaid will reimburse it, Medicaid reimbursed prenatal care until the point where they are ready to deliver. Um, We are working right now to try to establish a partnership with our one hospital in the city in order to be able to transfer patients over at about 36 weeks, since that's where everything starts to really get hairy. And we would like it if they actually showed up at the hospital and didn't have a complete stranger deliver. But the reality is that is something that happens in Alabama. We've looked at our statistics, and when it comes to maternal mortality, 75% of people who die either during or after birth have been on Medicaid. Of those, 50% of them had no prenatal care in the first trimester. Another 25% have had no prenatal care in the second trimester. And 10% of them go into the hospital and that is the first time that they see a doctor. This is what we're trying to stop because we know that prenatal care from the beginning, is something that is inherent in needing to keep people alive during the childbirth process. And that's something that the state seems to have no interest in fixing.
1: Kimmy, you've been nodding, uh, you've been smiling, and you're an emergency physician. You're a a lawyer. You work at the National Women's Law Center. I'm wondering if you can provide perspective for the listeners and also your reflection on Alabama, your experience in Florida,
2: Indiana, and now Washington, D.C. With insurance, many people are familiar with the open enrollment period. It's the time of year where you can sign up for insurance. But there are certain things that can trigger the ability to enroll in insurance outside of open enrollment, and those are qualifying life events. You get married. You can sign up for new insurance. You can add someone to your plan, that sort of thing. Same thing with if you change jobs, you can change insurance. You could join a partner's insurance, et cetera the qualifying life event as it pertains to pregnancy is actually childbirth. So when you give birth, you can open your insurance, you could add a partner, you can add a child, but the qualifying life event is not getting pregnant. And so if you become pregnant, you don't have the ability to enter back into the insurance marketplace. You can't, you know, change your plan at work. You can't join your partner's plan if they have better coverage. And that would be such a huge boon to pregnant people. If you could improve your insurance just during the point of pregnancy, because it could increase your access to prenatal care. It could, you know, If you decide that you want to deliver at a hospital that's closer to you and that that that's not currently in your network and you want to change to a plan where that is a network, I mean, there's just so many ramifications to limited insurance during pregnancy. And so it's really some or another place that we are failing patients in terms of, you know, in the emergency department, we are covered by EMTALA. So emergency physicians will take care of any person, regardless of complaint regardless of time of day, regardless of ability to pay, regardless of insurance status. And so it is a place that anyone can get pregnancy care. It's not an ideal place, right? We're the emergency department. We are not OBGYNs. We do not offer continuity of care. And so while we can manage, you know, emergent presentations, we really need to be getting these patients connected with longitudinal care during the course of their pregnancy.
0: I just want to follow up on what Camille said. Um, first of all, that that qualifying event thing is fabulous, and I completely forgot all about that. And you're right. That is something that needs to be addressed probably at the federal level. Um, and now I think that's on my list of new things to push for because God knows I didn't have enough to do. Um, but, but also... When you talk about emergency rooms as, as a place where people are supposed to go to, obviously for emergency care, this is not where people are supposed to go to for pregnancy care. Um, what people don't understand is that in the South, because of the lack of insurance, that is where they go they do not have doctors. They do not have private physicians. They barely have um, urgent cares. And a lot of times they are unable to get into their urgent cares. And so this is a compounding problem, not just because of the fact that you should not be using your emergency room as primary care, but also the way that this is affecting pregnant patients is that for pregnant patients who are experiencing some sort of pregnancy complication, first of all, emergency rooms, there aren't that many hospitals in the South in general, but also they are overwhelmed with all of these people who are using them as primary care. And as such, when it comes to somebody who is pregnant and bleeding, doctors aren't seeing them. Doctors are putting them lowest on the priority list because, hey, this person might be having a heart attack and this person broke their arm and you know what? But people bleed all the time in pregnancy and pregnancy is a really long process. So surely this patient can wait for a while until we deal with these other really bad emergencies. And so this is how this is compounding in the South. And why we're having such bad pregnancy um, death rates is because the doctors aren't seeing the patient's.
2: To put the strain on emergency departments into context, so there are studies that show up to 84% of pregnant patients will visit the emergency department sometime during their pregnancy. And pregnancy complications is the fifth most common reason that reproductive age women visit emergency departments.
1: I'm wondering for each of you, what was your aha moment that you said to yourself, self, health, women's health, women's reproductive health, this is my path. Kimmy, why don't you take it first, then Robin?
2: So my aha moment was very clear to me. Um, I was in 12th grade and Susan Wood was on NPR and she very publicly announced her resignation from FDA when Plan B was supposed to go over the counter without age restrictions. And that was the recommendation of the expert panel. And politicians got involved and they said this for political reasons is not really great. And plan B was not approved for over-the-counter access for all ages. And I said, this is absurd, right? Like I wanted to become a physician, but the idea that non-physicians could intervene in this medical decision-making process and override the evidence and decide the care that millions of people across this country would have access to was completely offensive to my 12th grade self. And so I said, I'm going to go to law school and I am going to do reproductive rights. And here we are.
0: I 100% love Kimmy's 12th grade self and um, (laughs) bravo. Mine was a lot later, unfortunately. I think I was one of those people that believed in these rights, but until it actually affected me directly, I didn't get that passion for it. And for me, it was not an abortion. It was actually my second pregnancy. And I went in for my 12 week checkup and discovered that I'd had a missed miscarriage. And so I'd had no indication that there was anything wrong with this pregnancy. Everything was progressing all the ways that it seemed to be, um, positive. And so when I went in and I found out that there was no heart and that no cardiac activity, and I was sent to go get a better ultrasound. And when I was told that this pregnancy was not viable, that apparently I'd lost it around eight weeks, um, that was when I discovered that my doctor did not have the ability to do a DNC. And so I had to call around and find a doctor who could do this for me. And it's interesting how abortion stigma plays into a lot of this because it never occurred to me that I could go to a clinic. And I was in Minneapolis at the time. So it would have been very easy for me to go somewhere and have this taken care of pretty quickly. Um, But instead, I called around trying to find a doctor who could do a DNC for me. And it was horrifying because all I could think of at that moment was that there was this thing inside of me that... I could not remove myself, that it had gone horribly wrong, and that the only way that I could move forward with my life was to find a doctor who was able to take care of it for me. And that was the moment where I'm like, I think I kind of understand what a person with an unwanted pregnancy feels like. And this coincidentally happened right about the time that they were having the debate over the Stupac-Bitts Amendment in the Affordable Care Act. You've decided that because I wanted that pregnancy, it's okay for me, but if somebody didn't want the pregnancy, then it's not okay. And that was my, that was my superhero origin story. Um, and so I've been passionately involved in it ever since.
1: For each of you, did you realize you had a voice before you started using that voice? Robin, um, why don't you just follow up and then Kimmy?
0: Yeah, I was lucky in the fact that I had already been involved in progressive media at that point. Um, I was working for an organization that was starting progressive news sites in a number of different states. And I was running the Minnesota one at that time. Um, so I I had started out as a blogger back in the early 2000s when that sort of thing was cool. And I, I've always been very loud about the things that I do. Um, my ability to be heard, honestly, did not really get anywhere until the 2010s when all of the model legislation began. And at that point, we were the only ones who were covering that. We were the only ones who said, hey, this bill here in Missouri is the same as this bill over here in Iowa. And so we need to pay attention. This is a concerted effort to take down Roe v. Wade, and you are not paying enough attention and trying to stop this.
2: I absolutely had no idea that I had a voice that, was worth, that I could amplify. I mean, so this whole plan B thing that I mentioned, that was 2005. So I was 16 years old. and So, I mean, I, you know, had no idea what I was doing. And throughout college, I didn't do much related to advocacy or anything like that. And even in medical school, You know, I began to get involved in organized medicine, but I was a medical student among hundreds of other medical students. And it wasn't really until residency that I started to kind of focus my efforts and realize that if you are targeted enough in your advocacy, that people will listen to you. And so that's when I really realized that I could say things and that people might listen to me and that I could in fact make a change. You
1: famously talked about a case in Indiana of
2: uh, a pregnant minor. And I'm wondering if you can give the listeners a little bit of that. Yeah, I was an intern. And like all emergency medicine interns, we rotate on labor and delivery because it turns out that we provide a lot of pregnancy-related care in the emergency department. And so it's ideal that we have some training in that care. And so I was working nights on labor and delivery. And I just, I mean, we had so many pregnant minors on the ward, You know, 16, 17-year-old you know, parents who are getting ready to deliver. And I just remember one, I was doing my rounds and she said, I'd like an epidural, you know, my contractions are getting really painful. And that sounded completely reasonable to me. I mean, everyone else on the unit had an epidural. And so I went to my chief and I was like, oh, you know, patient in this room is asking for an epidural. And she said, oh, well, she can't have one because she's 17. And I was just like, what do you mean? I mean, who cares that she's 17? She's about to birth a baby and standard of care is an epidural. Like, why would she not have access to the standard of care? And I was like, oh, well, don't you know that in Indiana, unless their parent is with them, then they can't get an epidural because they can't consent to medical care. And I was like, this makes no sense. I mean, I've consented these postpartum moms for circumcision. So I know that they can consent to medical care. Oh, yeah, well, they can consent to the medical care for their child, but just not for themselves pre or postpartum. And I mean, in Florida, where I had to medical school, pregnancy allowed you to make your own medical decisions. But in Indiana, that wasn't the case. And I had learned on the war that that didn't, in fact, you know, trigger emancipation. And you didn't suddenly magically develop the right to consent to your own medical care. And I was just like, surely we cannot all stand around and say that this makes sense and that this patient should have to give birth vaginally without access to an epidural because she is 17 and not 18 and her parent is not at bedside. And so I was absolutely outraged. I mean, the idea that we're going to stand here and enable this kind of care was completely offensive to me. And so I said, okay, I'm going to go to the State Medical Association. I'm going to change this law. And I think they all were like, you're an EM intern on labor and delivery nights. Like, What are you talking about? Like, whatever you say, sure, fine, whatever. Um, and then, wouldn't you know, it? a year and a half later, we got this hospital-wide email that said, as of July 1, all pregnant minors can now consent to their own medical care because of a new law that was enacted.
1: Robin, you have written a book, Handbook for a Post-Roe America. And what was your intention behind that in terms of helping people along?
0: So, Handbook for a Post Roe America came out of the day that Anthony Kennedy announced that he was leaving the Supreme Court. And when that happened, I was on Twitter, like like any good junkie, and everybody on Twitter was saying, "That's the end of Roe v. Wade. I need to give all my money to Planned Parenthood, and I need to stockpile Plan B." And so I was trying to explain on Twitter why these are both not the best ways to actually have an effective um, advocacy if Roe is being overturned. Um, Planned Parenthood at that time was not providing abortions in most of the states that were down to one or two clinics. Um, Stockpiling Plan B both removes it from the shelves so that people who are having actual emergencies are unable to access it and also, you know, (laughs) what are you going to do, drive around with it in your trunk with a sign that says Free Plan B, there are lots of organizations that exist that do this work. And that was the point was, there are people who've been planning for this for decades. Let them do the work. Here's how you can support it. And so it turned into 10 chapters of different things that people could do regardless of what their um, income level was, where they lived, what their reproductive status was, and also um, what their stomach for potentially illegal actions were as well and how to use your privilege in order to be able to do some of these pushing of the envelopes. Um, I wrote that and it came out in 2019, I think. Um, yeah. And then COVID hit and it became very clear all the pieces that were missing, because the first thing that happened when COVID was established as a medical emergency is all of the states that were planning to close abortion clinics when Roe was overturned closed their abortion clinics, saying that those were not essential health care. And so we saw what the strain of the system would be if there were not abortion clinics, if people needed to be able to get medication online, if people needed to be able to stay at home, because even if they did have a legal clinic, they didn't want to go In there and expose themselves to that sort of risk. So I rewrote that in um, 2021 and republished it. And of course, after the Supreme Court leak came out, it sold out because everybody was like, oh, wait, this is really happening. Um, And the goal of the book was not, hey, this is everything that you should be doing. It was, Find a thing that you are comfortable with. There's one thing in this book that any person will be able to take away to make them feel that they have been empowered, that there is something that they can do to fight, whether it's giving to an abortion fund or protesting at uh, City city Hall. Um, There is a thing that we can do right now to show that we are not going to take it. And I think that's more important now than it has ever been because... The media has made this into such a 50-50 divide that is simply not true. We know that at least 60 to 70 percent of people believe that abortion should be available um at any point prior to viability. We know that even in states like Alabama, if we re-ran our amendment to vote, um, we have we have 60% of Alabamians who have said that they believe that abortion should be legal. What we can't do is get to that vote again because we have a legislature that says we are not going to approve the ability to have this vote. Um, so we have this minority that has far too much power over our own bodily autonomy. And that is the point in which we need to figure out how do we make ourselves louder? How do we make ourselves more effective? And how do we say if we have to, you know, unjust laws are not laws that need to be followed.
2: I get emails all the time, you know, Dr. Turnaby, I work with you in the emergency department and I'm non-medical, but I want to help. And what can I do? And I say, you should sign up to become an abortion doula or you should donate to your local abortion fund, right? Those are ways that you can meaningfully help people who are trying to access abortion. But then within the emergency department, I have friends who say, hey, like, what can we do to be helping? And to Robin's point, you know, the procedure is the same for a DNC for a missed miscarriage versus an elective abortion in the first trimester. And there's no reason that this skill should fall outside the set of skills that emergency medicine physicians have. And so when I was in residency, I spent a month at my local Planned Parenthood doing first trimester procedures to get those skills so that I could offer them to patients who were having miscarriages because patients who come into the emergency department and I diagnose with a miscarriage have those same feelings that Robin was describing, right? Like, I don't want to carry this miscarriage miscarriage. I this like I don't want to carry this around. There's an emotional burden, there's a physical burden, and I want to be done with this. And there's no reason that emergency medicine physicians shouldn't be able to say, okay, we can offer you a, de- a manual uterine aspiration and MUA here in the department. And so as clinicians, we can acquire those skills and make sure that patients have access to them and meet them where they are.
0: I would like to add to what Kimmy said and say that when it comes to medical providers, oh my God, please be loud. Um, There is so much misconception about the fact that it's assumed that, especially in Southern states, that doctors approve of this, that doctors think that this is a good thing. The doctors down here are terrified. Their hands are tied. And yes, we do have doctors who are going to refuse to do follow-up care or refuse to treat an ectopic pregnancy. And it may not be because they're worried about the law. It's just because they really do think that um, God chose this pregnancy or that um, a person deserves whatever they're going through for having had the sex the sex um, and but for the most part it is the fact that it is doctors who are scared
1: the risa wrap-up special thanks to kimmy and to robin for joining me in conversation i really appreciated you taking the time to share your expertise and your passion on this topic, specifically at the one-year mark of the devastating Dobbs decision. Audience, use your voice. Advocate. If you are in health care, it is really important that you are able to share your stories, tell the circumstances that you're seeing, and how a lack of bodily autonomy, a lack of access to abortion care, is harming women. Number two, find out your state-specific laws and see what you can do to advocate for policy changes to make it safer to provide care for women. Number three, silence is complicity. And given the current environment, the current state in the United States, none of us can afford to be silent. That's it for this week, audience. The Visible Voices Podcast amplifies voices both known and unknown, discussing topics of healthcare equity, and current trends. Our production team includes Stacy Gitlin, Dr. Giuliano Deportu, and me, Dr. Risa E. Lewis. Please find me on social media, at Risa E. Lewis, and through the website, thevisiblevoicespodcast.com. If you like the podcast, please rate and review us.